Alright, welcome back, U.S. History, for part two of Imperialism American Style. So we left off, we talked about humanitarian reasons for taking over another country, economic reasons, nationalistic reasons, and militaristic reasons. We gave a few different examples, and I left off talking about the biggest argument for U.S. expansion was economically based. And I said, if you remember, that we're getting into the American spirit. And I know that sounds a little weird. How is that a justification for taking over another country? Well, so during this kind of time, the early 1800s, leaders of America worried that with the closing of the frontier, and that means the Western expansion, you know, the wild, wild west, not just a bad movie by Will Smith, um, that with this kind of no longer new land to explore and take over in America, that the nation's energy would kind of go away. And so we kind of thought that empire building and taking over foreign countries would be the natural progression. So no longer expanding out to the West, let's expand to other countries. And as we started to take over other countries, there was also this kind of social Darwinism uh, thing that kind of took shape. So here's the definition of social Darwinism. A theory arising in the late 19th century that the laws of evolution which Charles Darwin had observed in nature also apply to society. Social Darwinists argue that social progress resulted from conflicts in which the fittest or best adapted individuals or entire societies would prevail. It gave rise to the slogan, survival of the fittest. So, basically when applied to the United States, it is our job or duty to bring our culture and introduce such things as Christianity or modern civilization to other heathen areas or people around the world. So our culture is the best. Our way of doing things is the best. So we're going to take over other areas and bring the best of our country to theirs. And the reason it's okay is because our culture is better than theirs. So they'll start to be like us. Now, we do see some backlash to this. Um, you know, different areas around the world, there are people that don't like uh, our way of doing things. And it's, and it's a broader sense than just saying our as an American. You can say just Western ways of doing things. For instance, um, part of Africa, we see this group known as Boko Haram. Um, you know, and if, if you translate that, it basically means kind of anti-Western education or Western ide ideas. And a few years ago, there was a, this terrible incident where these uh, Boko Haram group uh, kidnapped a whole bunch of young women that were attending school because they didn't like the idea of women attending school because that's seen as a Western idea, you know, women having rights. Uh, oh, no, that was me being facetious because that's the right. Everyone deserves education and everyone, we're humans, we need to be treated, uh, anyhow, so this terrible, hateful group, they're like, well, we don't like this new way of doing things, we don't like your western ideas and stuff, so there's kind of that backlash to progress, now, you know, it can be looked at, social Darwinism is one country taking over and saying, you need to be like us, okay, that, well, that sounds kind of harsh, but it's like, well, hey, you guys are doing things that are terrible, like, you know, cannibalism, hmm, we're going to teach you not to do cannibalism yeah so anyhow some examples during this time of america taking over other areas of the world specific examples here uh beyond just midway island in hawaii let's talk about cuba i mentioned them earlier so during this time cuba was under spanish control now remember we didn't like the sphere of influence of america kind of being violated by other countries like spain so in 1868 
um, there was some ruckus going on in Cuba because the local population was rebelling against Spain. Now, this is not America's doing or anything. I'm just giving you a little bit of a you know history of what's going on. So, 10 years of fighting ensued, and some reforms were put in place to help, but not a ton. All right, so then... Fast forward a couple years, 1895, there's more rebellion going on. Spain sends 150,000 troops and one of their top generals named Valerino Weiler, who has some awesome, like, mustache kind of mutton chops look to him. But, you know, Valerino Weiler instituted these things called reconcentration camps. And they're basically, like concentration camps that forced thousands of Cubans into these guarded camps of all ages, miserable conditions, little food, little sanitation, and in a two-year time frame, disease and starvation killed around uh, 200,000 Cubans. So, obviously, uh, Cuba's, Cubans, you know, civilians are, are not happy about this. And Cuban exiles, or people that are formerly from Cuban who, Cuba who have been kind of kicked out, living in America here, they wanted the United States to do something. They're like, hey, Cuba's like 90 miles away. Can you kind of go do something about this? Well, the United States, we were fairly reluctant. We didn't want to get involved and stir up trouble, you know, foreign affairs kind of things. All right. So frustrating Cuban freedom fighters in Cuba, also known as guerrillas, guerrilla warfare kind of stuff. That'll come into play a lot later on when we get to like Vietnam. Anyhow, these Cuban freedom fighters or guerrillas were upset and frustrated, so they destroyed American sugar plantations and mills in Cuba. Now, I know what you're thinking. What on earth is this going to accomplish? Don't worry. I'm here to help you. So this caused American businessmen to get upset because all of a sudden they're losing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from their businesses getting messed up because of what's going on in Cuba. So these high-up businessmen who have lots of money and influence started putting pressure on the U.S. government to do something about it so they stop losing money. All right, so that's one pressure right there. All right, number two pressure, journalism. So the newspapers and the tabloids helped to spur the conflict. Newspapers would sensationalize the news and kind of like talk it up. So it's like, oh, you know, a sugar plantation blew up in Cuba today. It's like, it's like fire and mayhem in Cuba as a plantation burns to the ground. Many people could have died. I didn't say died. I said could have died. So basically they got people riled up about what was going on in Cuba. They often exaggerated the events. This was called yellow journalism, or journalism based upon sensationalized and crude exaggerations. All right. So um, often newspapers would use attention-grabbing headlines to sell newspapers. For instance, the New York Journal was infamous for doing this, and I'll kind of give you an example of this uh, in just a moment here. Uh, but this was the editor was William Randolph Hearst, and we'll hear about him a little bit later on. So I'll come back to that sensationalized headline news. I know you want to hear it, so hold on. Um, anyhow, so... In 1898, riots in Havana, which was the capital of Cuba, still is, um, erupted. And so the United States President McKinley um, sent the battleship USS Maine to the city's harbor to protect American citizens and property. So remember how those people were upset, those businessmen, for you know getting their uh, sugar plantations messed up? So he's like, all right, hey, I'll send down a battleship. We'll keep an eye on things, all right? So... The newspapers during this time published a stolen letter from the Spanish ambassador, and this was known as the Delone Letter. And it 
basically to summarize it, called President McKinley weak. Well, soon after this, an explosion went off and sank the USS Maine. Now, we don't know 100% what happened. Most likely, there was a fire inside the ship that got out of control. It was an accident, and it ignited some ammunition, caused an explosion, and sank the ship. Most likely, we probably accidentally did it ourselves. Well, remember how I told you about that news uh, article sensationalizing? Well, here is the New York Morning Journal. Journal, Remember, William Randolph Hearst. All right, here is the quote, and I'll do my best to sensationalize it as much as possible. How long shall the United States sit idle and indifferent within sound and hearing of rape and murder? How long? All right. So just to kind of pull out a few things here, how long will the United States just sit by, hanging out, twiddling our thumbs, when rape and murder is going on right next to us? How long are we going to sit by and do nothing? All right, that is pretty big accusation for America to just be like sitting by while this terrible thing is going on. So, all right. So during all this time that all this stuff is going on, and we're, we're getting ready to do something, I know you're like, oh, come on, are, what's going to happen? Is war or what? I'm kind of getting bored here. I want, I want things to happen. All right, don't worry. During this same time, there was a stirring going on within the Philippines. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. We're talking about Cuba, the Philippines? That's like the other side of the world. Well, the Philippines was also controlled by the Spanish. Now, Theodore Roosevelt at this time, who was the assistant secretary of the Navy, eventually president, thought that the Philippines would be a very, very valuable asset for protecting American uh, trading routes in Asia. So he kind of sees an opportunity here and says, look, let's have the Navy kind of prepare for military action uh, within this area. Should we go to war with Japan? I'm sorry, with, ha, huh, not Japan, Spain. Um, it was protecting our Japanese routes. Anyhow, so, the sinking of the U.S.'s Maine was the kind of last straw. So, McKinley, United States, sent one last warning to Spain and says, Look, you need to pay us for the Maine that we most likely blew up. No more reconcentration camps. Send that Valerina Weiler dude home. We need to have no more fighting in Cuba and give Cuba independence. And Spain was like, you know what? We'll give you everything, even though we probably did not blow up the Maine. We'll give you everything, but Cuba does not get to be free that's ours. McKinley's like, you know what? We're going to war. So on April 11th, 1898, we go to war. And the first battles of this Spanish-American war was not fought in Cuba like you would expect. It was actually in the Philippines. And this was a surprise attack on most of the Spanish fleet that was anchored in Manila Bay. And it took about seven hours and we just wrecked them kind of thing. So now, getting on to Cuba, troops gathered in Florida for an invasion of Cuba, and probably the most well-known group of soldiers was the Rough Riders, led by none other than Theodore Roosevelt, also known as Teddy Roosevelt, nicknamed the Trust Buster, if you remember our industrialization unit. And he had resigned his post at this point to lead this ragtag or rough group of riders, cowboys, miners, policemen, college athletes, just a ragtag bunch of guys. I kind of think of it as the movie Predator. If you haven't seen it, it's awesome, but it's rated R, so make sure that you're old enough or have parental consent. All right, anyhow, um, and he led this rough riding group um, into battle with, um, with probably one of the most famous fights of the Spanish-American War and kind of one of the only ones, the Battle of San Juan Hill. And... It was all about who could control the high ground for the most part, get it, a hill. So in total, 2,500 Americans died. Yet, 
only 400 of them died in battle. I know what you're thinking. What, what did they like trip on a rock and hit their head or something? So the things that they did die from was malaria, yellow fever, and food poisoning. Overall, this was not a very big war. Um, we kicked their butts in uh, Manila Bay and took out their, you know, full fleet. And then we went over to Cuba and didn't have much fighting going over there. It was a pretty short war. And so the war is over, so we have to sign a treaty. And of course, where do you go to sign treaties? France. So we have the Treaty of Paris. And on December of 1898 the treaty between the united states and spain was signed and spain was supposed to recognize cuba's independence the united states would get control of the philippines also puerto rico and the pacific islands of guam all for 20 million and even if you put that into today's numbers that is a heck of a deal and these new territories became unincorporated which meant that these lands were not intended for eventual statehood so it's like we got these lands but we're not going to call them states so cuba thankful for getting their independence said hey thank you so much now can you guys please leave we're not really sure why you still have troops here so the united states said okay we are going to authorize you, Cuba, to start drafting a constitution. And, oh, by the way, when you make this constitution, how about you just kind of make it look like ours? Because ours is the best. All right, that's nationalistic because our way is the best way. So make it like ours. And that's also humanitarian because, well, we don't want them to have a dictatorship. They should probably have a democracy like ours, but because it's the best way and we're here to help you. That's why we got you independence in the first place kind of thing. I'm sorry that I sound maybe a bit facetious here. But we're kind of forcing them to, to be exactly like us. And, you know, while, I, hey, I like America. I like the way our, our, our things are. But, you know, at the same time, you want people to have and make their own decisions. I mean, that's just kind of a life thing. You can show people the door, but they got to choose to walk through it. So, um, anyhow. So, the United States agreed to remove troops from Cuba if Cuba would put in their constitution this thing called the Platt Amendment. P-L-A-T-T. -T. Uh, and... The Cuba, the, basically, the Platt Amendment said the Cuban government could not enter any foreign agreement um, with, like, anyone without, like, just, just in general. You know, the United States had oversight over this. And the United States could establish a naval base on the island. And maybe you've heard of this one, Guantanamo Bay. And the United States could intervene whenever it felt necessary. And Cuba felt a little trapped. So they're like, well, we want you out. So I guess we're going to have to sign this thing. So they did. All right. So Puerto Rico, on the other hand, also, they didn't really get their independence. Okay. So the United States is taking over this area and we're not really going to give them the freedom. Uh, we sent our military over to help kind of develop their country, develop their infrastructure, education system, and police force. Once again, nationalistic, our way's best way, humanitarian. We're there to help them. And... We put in the Four Acre Act, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, in 1900, which said, okay, now that we have helped you out with all this stuff, we'll remove our military control and establish a civil government, but you're still really under our control. You just have a little bit more freedom. So it's not quite the Cuba treatment, but it's, it's not far off. All right, and one of the last areas of the world that we're going to be talking about, we have two, uh, we're going to be talking about China, and then we'll talk about Panama. So uh, another country that we didn't exactly take over, but we wanted to have some relationship with, was China. So China, um, historically and present, 
has a huge population, meaning they have vast markets to buy things. Um, so Russia, Germany, Britain, France, and Japan were all seeking spheres of influence in China. So the United States, we were a little kind of late to the party. So we wanted this thing called an open door policy. And it basically said, look, everyone already has stakes in China. Everyone already has all these trading agreements. Let's make China free to trade with everyone. Everyone should have an equal opportunity to trade with China. And it would it didn't they didn't really ask China when they did this. They just kind of said, look, let's talk with all the countries and everyone's going to agree with this. And we kind of said that people agreed with this before people actually agreed with this. But hey, we're the United States and we're an upcoming country and we've got a lot of uh, military and stuff. So it's like, look, everyone trades equally in China now. And China's like, wait a minute, do I get to say? And we said, no, everyone gets to trade free in China. So um, this is going to lead to things like, you know, Boxer Rebellion, those kind of things um, a little bit later on as we move forward. And remember, this is all about economic reasons for taking over another country with China and the open door policy. And our last example, and continually building off of that economic reason, the Panama Canal. All right, so with the expansion of the United States interests in trading and so forth, this led to a need for a shorter route between the Pacific and the Atlantic. So we wanted to basically connect the two. So a French company had tried to do this first. It failed miserably, mostly due to yellow fever and poor management conditions. So they sold the rights that they had, you know, they basically had a lease on this area um, of Panama to do this. So they sold the rights to America. So the United States bought the rights for $40 million with the passage of the Spooner Act in 1902. Now, Colombia didn't want the Spooner Act to go through. Uh, they wanted to de delay negotiations, hoping for to, to delay till 1904. The idea was in 1904, the French concession would expire, and then they could renegotiate for more money or something along those lines. All right. The United States did not take kindly to this delay. Um, so this was a from Secretary of State John Hay during this time. Um, here's a little quote from him, and I'll do my best to read it here. If Colombia should now reject the treaty of or unduly delay its ratification, the friendly understanding between the two countries would be so seriously compromised that action might be taken by Congress next winter, which every friend of Colombia would regret. Basically, look. Don't mess with this treaty. Don't stop it. Don't delay it. Because if you do, we're coming after you and all of your friends. Okay? Putting a little anger in there and a little bit of attitude. So, um, anyhow, after some, some more threats and so forth, the Panama Canal did go through and the United States held it for quite some time. And um, I think it was after 100 years we finally did give back control. Um, we did give back control to Panama. I'm just debating whether it's 100 years or not. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, but after about 100 years, we gave back control of the Panama Canal to Panama now. Um, so anyhow, that's what we're going to leave off with imperialism. We are far from done with imperialism. This is an ongoing thing. And imperialism has changed a little bit in modern day. Um, it's much more cultural imperialism today and nationalism in our country's way of doing things. We don't formally take over countries as much. Usually they just kind of become like us or like each other and so forth. Um, so anyhow, we are going to stop there. Uh, bottom line, imperialism is still going on today. This will be a theme throughout 
our units from now until the end of the year and just modern day and everything. So anyhow, we're going to stop there and I'll see you next time in U.S. history land. Have a great day.